joining me for quite excellent episode number 63. Today's poem is by Ada Limon, titled Before. It comes from her 2015 collection Bright Dead Things. I have four copies of this in my library, and it is full of just excellent poems that feel lived in and personal, relatable, even when the experiences are not your own. I'm personally a big fan of How to Triumph Like a Girl, the first of the collection and a poem my daughter read last year for this podcast in October. Before is a type of poem called an occasional poem, because it writes about a particular occasion. And if you include this in your tag for the genre, I will be pretty impressed. Occasional poems try to document a moment and feelings, thoughts, contexts that make that moment significant. Sometimes just the moment itself matters, but often the moment is important for the events which lead to it, or the events which followed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, we need to get back to Adam Segajewski's poem, Transformation. Here's the poem, read by me. Transformation, by Adam Zagajewski, translated by Claire Cavanaugh. I haven't written a single poem in months. I have lived humbly, reading the paper pondering the riddle of power and the reasons for obedience. I've watched sunsets crimson, anxious. I've heard the birds grow quiet in nights mutinous. I've seen sunflowers dangling their heads at dusk as if a careless hangman had gone strolling through the gardens. September's sweet dust gathered on the windowsill and lizards hid in the bends of walls. I've taken long walks, craving one thing only. Lightning. Transformation. You. Okay, well... My students had a lot of great things to say about this poem, very creative, and I think I'm going to start by talking about how students explored nature, which seems to be pretty prominent in this poem. One writes that the speaker uses figurative language to describe how many things can transform, like the sunflower, to a hangman. Another builds here, saying that uh, the poem makes readers comfortable with the whole concept of transformation. They point to the quote, I've heard birds grow quietly, and suggest that when the readers asked to imagine how baby birds adapt to what's around them and grow out of their original nest, this is a peaceful transition. It's a natural, intentional one that we're comfortable with. My student writes that the speaker uses the nature to convey how not writing poetry blocks his enlightenment. Birds are quieting, sunflowers lower their heads. All these things because he's stopped writing. Another says that he searches for beauty within the sunset, the flowers, the birds, but only finds somber characteristics. This seems to suggest to the student that beauty fades over time in the poem. Another response points to crimson, anxious, as being unusual words to describe a sun. Crimson, typically associated with blood, sunsets are supposed to be relaxing, so anxious is wrong too. These should be aesthetically pleasing things, the student says. The speaker may not be as pleased with the sunsets anymore, and likely because the speaker no longer sees the beauty that is around him because he's feeling drained by these feelings for you, and this is impacting his view of the rest of the world. And this you is something that a number of students explored as well. One writes that I thought the you in this poem is some special person in his life that brings a bit of change. But this student 
also accepted another student's suggestion that this you could be referring to some better version of himself. A student writes that the poet uses dark adjectives and phrases to describe the speaker's yearning for a loved one and how the world is not the same without them. Another agrees, writing that he could be describing the pain he feels for losing someone or perhaps even losing his love for poetry. He misses what writing poems made him feel. This student suggests the you at the end is poetry itself. And I think this gives us a, a good reason to divert a little bit to poetry because one student specifically had a, some really good ideas related to what the poem is saying about poetry. And they wrote that the author transitions smoothly from not writing a poem to noticing details in nature that are necessary parts of a powerful poem. He's, quote, lived humbly reading the paper. Then all of a sudden he's noticing, quote, the birds grow quiet in the night's muteness. This is the transformation that the speaker is talking about. This student seems to suggest that the poet is creating poetry in his observations, even as he struggles with creating poetry. It's a transformation that seems to happen without their knowledge. Returning to you, another student writes that the author is speaking to us personally, the, the audience. Now, this student didn't suggest what it might mean if the you here is the reader, but I like this idea. I think it's a shame that it's a little bit unexplored, because if this is the case, then our speaker and maybe our poet as well are trying to make connections with the reader. And maybe that's the whole reason for poetry. That's why it hurts that we haven't had that poetry in so long. Another writes that the speaker needs a lightning-like transformation to bring him back to his normal state of life, which can most likely be achieved only through the return of his significant other. Now, obviously, this transformation, this need for change is essential in this poem, and a lot of students explored this idea. One wrote that the choice of metaphors in the poem that imply that the speaker craves transformation, the change in the monotony after someone important to him leaves. Related to this, a student says that this poem slowly goes from questioning and observing life to the determination to make a change in life. And here's where I need to mention a couple really thoughtful extended responses that I think build on this idea of the significance of the change that's being described. Uh, the first of these is a student that writes, he is at peace with his surroundings, but entirely with himself. He craves you because you may have changed. He has seen someone change, and now he desperately wants it for himself. I think this is shown by his use of the word lightning, as lightning can change things in an instant. If it hits a tree, it could either split it down the middle or set it ablaze. Lightning also changes the scenery, as it could turn the gentle autumn rain into a thunderous monsoon. Which, lovely ideas. Actually quite poetic, I would say. And related here is another longer response. A student writes, He has a mundane life and nothing to write about. As the poem continues, the tone gets sadder, heads of flowers dangling, and craving lightning transformation you this represents his sadness and how he's waiting for something the speaker wants something loud majestic and new he wants inspiration and i love this i think this is a great point also really solid three-word sentence at the end of that analysis if you can put in a really solid three-word sentence that like punctuates your point with nice clarity ooh, that itself is inspirational i love it on the subject of change though i got one more a student writes that at the end of the poem, he states that he's craving transformation, which means he hasn't changed yet, but he wants it. It's actually haunting him at night with the silence and on his walks. And this feels 
Right. I don't know when I first read this that I would have described this poem as having elements of horror, but when I think about it, the dangling heads, the hangman, the gathering of dust, things crawling behind walls, all of these things are vaguely unsettling. And the idea of the speaker feeling haunted, I think that's exactly right. Now, other things that might be connected with this haunting is some of the language used early on when we're talking about night and dusk. These are the these are the traditional environments of horror films and novels, and it gives us a great place to jump into an interesting analysis of aging. A student writes, night and dusk and fall. The reasons for these could be because the speaker is old, so his descriptions relate to endings. Related, another says, I've lived humbly and it, this shows that the person has lived a long, humble life. Presumably, I assume, this is me, Leiden, interjecting, because we're using the past tense here, lived, not am living. And the student extent continues by saying, the poem implies that the person is ready to move on to the next thing after this life. A related response notes the, I've taken long walks craving one thing only, lightning, transformation, you. And these lines show the desire for new and exciting changes that often come with and are attributed to youth. In fact, that description, says another student, of a careless hangman strolling through gardens and the crimson and anxious. The student says that these are the signs of a youthful and playful imagination, which is interesting that we could simultaneously have one student suggesting that this is an older character or speaker or individual struggling with the past, but we have another who's noting the richness and youthfulness of these descriptions. And it can absolutely be both. I love that. In the last episode, when I was talking about this poem, I kind of wondered about that hangman line. And this last response about the youthfulness of that, the playfulness of it, wasn't the only one that did it. A student writes that the careless hangman refers to someone who carelessly brings death, which shows that the flowers dangling their heads at dusk allude to the sort of sadness that hangs around the flowers. Another student kind of suggests that this careless hangman could be one whose limbs are uncontrolled and as a result, they are destructive to those around me. I get the impression they're describing someone flailing as they are executed, which is a pretty morbid image, but not entirely disconnected with what we've talked about. Finally, I have to talk about students who explored structure. I love when they do this, and there is some cool stuff in here. One writes that the speaker is just going through the motions or trying to find some new spark in life, and they point specifically to that opening line, I haven't written a single poem in months. And they suggest that this puts more emphasis on in months, because in months is given its own line. It stands alone, and it really hammers in how long the speaker has gone without using their creative talents. A student responded to the repetition of I've, saying that the poet uses I've many times because it gives the feeling of doing things over and over again. It creates a sense that things are boring and in need of change, in need of modification from the routine. These last couple responses consider the final few lines of the poem as it slowly goes from a wide line down to a single word, you. My student writes that the poem's conclusion shows the reason for the monotony. Near the end, the lines form a sort of arrow leading down to the poem's conclusion, the and you. 
Another writes that the poem structure starts going down little by little, showing how the speaker notices so many things, but none of them are fulfilling. And another notes that the speaker slowly decreases the stanza's width little by little, because this is what you feel when you transform yourself, slowly putting the old you behind you. I don't know what to say about all this. I enjoy it all so much. It's all very, very cool. I do realize, though, as we're reading through these, I'm considering these, that colon at the end of the fourth from last line, craving one thing only. One thing that colons do is they say, here's the thing I'm talking about. Here's the example. And this is weird in this poem. I didn't even realize it earlier. The speaker says they crave one thing only, but then they list three things. Is lightning, transformation, and you, are those all the same thing? Or is he confused? Oh man, I don't know. But I wish I had suggested that exploration to students because I know they would have had great responses. My goodness, this is this was wonderful. What a way to return. Not only was the analysis of students absolutely fantastic, most were successful at beginning their paragraphs with effective claims. Going forward, this is a regular expectation for the paragraph and included in the five points you earned for completing that paragraph. Remember, you have to have a tag, that's a title, author, genre, a what, and a how. If you ever need a refresher on our writing tasks, check the resources section of Google Classroom. You'll find a post titled Writing References, where I place all of my writing task attachments, even the ones we haven't done yet. You could, if so inclined, even pop in there to get ahead on some of the skills we'll practice later in the year. This week, we're going to focus on two basic skills for our writing task and secret passphrase. I want students to imagine that the audience that will read their paragraphs is someone who has never even heard of or read this poem. Even if students have the best possible analysis, it is possible that this imagined audience will just not have enough information about the poem to really follow along. For this reason, the writing task is to include a brief one to two sentence summary of the essential information of the poem toward the beginning of the response. This should go just after the claim, which lives in the first sentence. So, key point here, do not summarize every detail of the poem. Instead, think about the analysis you're going to do and then provide just what is necessary for our ignorant audience to understand so that your argument makes sense to them. Pro tip, write this summary after you've finished your analysis. If you do this, you'll more easily be able to decide what has to be summarized. Our secret passphrase isn't actually a word, it's a name. I want you to use the name Limon in the response somewhere after the summary. Just the last name. While your claim should still have the full name of the poet, academic references to authors often use just the last name. Be sure that you are talking about the choices made in the writing and not about the narrator of the story. The narrator, if you'll recall, is called the speaker. The poet, Ada Limon, is the one making the artistic choices. Maybe I'll talk about Limon's use of repetition, or a specific language choice, or why she rhymes particular words together. Oh, and be sure to get the name right. There is an accent on the O in her last name. If you're not sure how to replicate it, copy and paste it from my Google Classroom post. And pro tip, if you paste while pressing Control, Shift, and V instead of just Control, V, you'll actually copy the letters exactly, but you will not copy the font. This is really useful, by the way, when you're copying essential information over from one document to another because you don't suddenly change the formatting partway through. Now, I'm already really eager for the ideas that will come up in our next poem. Uh, when I look at the poem from a distance, the thing that stands out to me is the repetition of before, and I'm sure students will explore it. 
but there's other details that are less obvious. Each of those before lines is a fragment, but each line ends with a period anyway. And why does the last before start in the middle of the line? All the other ones start at the beginning. There's also that big if toward the end. And for me, there's something about the opening lines that just, I don't know, it feels weird. We've talked in class about creating lists that are balanced, but this one feels so strange. Maybe because we have a no on one side of the, well, it's an implied yes on the other side. It's so odd. So I'm sure there are so many things that students will find to explore far beyond the things I've just suggested, but we really got to get to it. Here's Before by Ada Limon, and it's read by a friend of a friend, Sarah Warner. Before by Ada Limon. No shoes and a glossy red helmet. I rode on the back of my dad's Harley at seven years old. Before the divorce. Before the new apartment. Before the new marriage. Before the apple tree. Before the ceramics in the garbage. Before the dog's chain. Before the koi were all eaten by the crane. Before the road between us, there was the road beneath us. And I was just big enough not to let go. Henno Road, Creek just below, rough wind, chicken legs, and I never knew survival was like that. If you live, you look back and beg for it again, the hazardous bliss before you know what you would miss. A paragraph responding to this prompt is due on the Friday that ends the week, and your two replies to other students are due the Wednesday after. Students, be sure to use just the author's last name, Limon, in a sentence describing a choice made in the writing itself. This is our secret passphrase. For our writing task, include a one to two sentence summary of essential details of the poem. This should go just after the claim. You should also make sure you got that sweet claim opening in your paragraph, just as we practiced last week. One final thing, please remember to put the title before in quotation marks. We put all short texts, like short stories, so songs, essays, and poems in quotation marks. If you forget this, you'll miss the point for using quotation marks effectively. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, want to provide a reading, or would like the class to direct their eyes toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and the ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 63 of this podcast. I hope that... Between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. <laughs>